Hey there. A reminder, if you haven't yet, to try listening to the show on the NPR One app. NPR One finds the best stories and podcasts from public radio and beyond. Then it figures out what you like to give you more. Find NPR O-N-E on your app store. Okay, here's the show. Hey there, it's the NPR Politics Podcast here to talk about the very busy first few days of the Trump administration, which, among other things, continued a feud with the media that lasted all campaign and through the transition. I'm Scott Detrow. I cover Congress. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House. I'm Danielle Kurtzleben, political reporter. And I'm Ron Elbing, editor-correspondent. Busy weekend, guys. Yeah. Yeah, a little. (laughs) So we've got all the Trump stuff we're going to talk about. Tamara, you spent yesterday in the White House seeing him do his presidential thing. But uh, we're also going to talk later in the show about this massive women's march. Danielle, you were on the mall on Saturday. I was. What'd you think? It was just huge. No matter how far I walked, there were just more people. I would wager that a majority of the people there could not actually hear any of the speakers or anything official that was going on. I heard that the march was canceled because the entire route was filled yes, with people. Most definitely. And there were like, could not go anywhere. It was a stationary march. Right. And there were sub, actually there were sort of sub marches that kept popping up. There was one down Constitution Avenue for a while. It just kept going. We are going to talk a lot about that later. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, President Trump and the first few days first. And before we get into all the drama involving Sean Spicer, Tamara, you were working in the White House on Sunday. What was it like to be in the East Room and see the presidential lectern there and have Donald Trump walk out behind it. I mean, you've been covering the White House for a while. It's a different president. How different does it feel? You know, it, there, there's something about the White House where it just feels like the White House. And there were all of these families gathered for a swearing-in ceremony for uh, new senior staff. And, you know, there were little kids in little velvet jumpers. And, you know, it was a room full of families who were really happy that their family member was going to be part of the Trump administration. Now, one difference with the Obama administration is that the room was overwhelmingly white. Mm-hmm. Um And the Trump administration says they're still working on it and there are many more people to hire. But at the moment, it is overwhelmingly white and actually overwhelmingly male in the senior staff. All right. So we are going to get into uh, a lot of things that happened in one particular room of the White House where you spent a lot of time, the briefing room. Uh, And Donald Trump's press secretary, Sean Spicer, uh, he has just wrapped up his first full briefing in the press room. And it was pretty tense because of the weekend. Stick with us. We're going to do some backstory here. So 48 hours ago on Saturday, uh, when the Women's March was going on, President Trump visited the CIA and he was there to extend an olive branch to an agency that he attacked over the last month. But when he was talking, he veered into some media criticism, as he likes to do. Uh, President Trump did not like how the press reported the size of the crowds at the inauguration. I made a speech. I looked out. The field was, it looked like a million, a million and a half people. They showed a field where there were practically nobody standing there. And they said, Donald Trump did not draw well. I said, it was almost raining. The rain should have scared him away. But God looked down and he said, we're not going to let it rain on your speech. Actually did fact, rain I, on his speech. The rain started right when his speech began. Kind of like the did. Lion King when it starts to rain right when he climbs up Pride Rock. Uh, yeah, That's exactly how it was. Yeah. Uh, but you know, it did start to rain a little bit more. Was it Reverend Franklin Graham? Yes. Who said that, you know, in the Bible... Rain is considered a blessing, you know. So he, they, they of course had a positive spin on all of the weather. Yeah, but let's just, just say, Stephen Colbert had an interesting comment on that, saying that he had read the Bible 
and that uh, perhaps God had said to Noah, I'm going to bless the hell out of mm-hmm. this place. You better build a boat. Yeah. So we, we but, are... like, seriously, <laughs> maybe God didn't care one way or another about the president's speech, and it just rained. Well, you know, we, we got a little signal as to how to take all of that account from the president, in fairness, when he said, and God looked down and God said. I think at that point, people at the CIA sort of knew he was giving us a narrative. And you just got us right back on track, Ron. Thank you, Ron. Which is appreciated. Um, It's my function. So the CIA appearance veers into media criticism, veers into talking about the the size of the crowd at the inauguration. And a couple hours later, Sean Spicer comes to the White House press room to double down on the inaccurate things Trump had said about the crowd at the inauguration. And Spicer made several statements that just weren't true. This was the largest audience to ever witness an inauguration, period. So, of course, that became kind of a thing yesterday. Spicer Facts was the meme on the Internet. Uh, Tamara, I want to read you in particular one Spicer (laughs) fact that someone tweeted. Quote, the Star Wars prequels combine the magic and inventiveness of the original trilogy with the delightful antics of Jar Jar Binks, period. (laughs) Which, translation for those out there who are not Star Wars fans, no, they don't. And it went mainstream really quickly, like Saturday night, just an hour or so after his briefing, the Dallas Stars, uh, the NHL team, uh, they had, you know, every time sports teams, like, they'll announce the uh, the attendance at the game. They said, tonight's attendance, 1.5 million. <laughs> the largest <laughs> group to witness a hockey game in the history of sport. Oh, so, so this is actually a serious thing. And let's hear one more clip before we talk about it. So Sp- Sean Spicer goes out Saturday night and says things that just are not factually true. Uh, and then uh, Sunday morning, Kellyanne Conway's on Meet the Press. Chuck Todd presses her on this, and Kellyanne Conway says Sean Spicer was merely laying out what she calls alternative facts. Why did he do that? It undermines the credibility of the entire White House press office no, on doesn't. day don't one. Be so, don't be so overly dramatic about it, Chuck. What it, it, you're saying it's a falsehood, and they're giving Sean Spicer, our press secretary, gave alternative facts to that. But the point remains alternative that facts? Ron, is this a big deal or not? Alternative facts is an unfortunate choice of words because it suggests that there are two definitions of facts, that there are facts that other people might accept readily when demonstrated by the usual sort of rational methods and the sort of facts that are alternative to that, (laughs) things that might be preferable. Maybe we could call them preferable facts. Or alt facts. I mean, you know. They are alt facts. Right. Well, what what I heard when Sean Spicer got up and did that, that briefing on Saturday was, you know, he laid out... You know, here is why it might seem like the crowd was smaller. That whole thing about, well, there were gates that were used and magnetometers and there was that white flooring stuff put on the mall for the first time, which, by the way, it was not true. Right. Not the first time. And so not entirely true. But what he was doing was offering here are your narratives. If you don't want to believe this, if you see those photos, anybody who doesn't want to believe this here is here are the stories you can use. And this is something we've been grappling with a lot as people who report on facts for a living. Um, because my sister sent me something too, and she said, "Oh, look! Here's a picture comparing the women's march to Trump's march. Look how much bigger the women's march." Well, first of all, the women's march was bigger. Oh yeah. And I said to my sister, "Look at the trees in that picture. They're green and full of leaves. That's not a picture from yesterday." And she's like, "Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. you're right." Oh. Um, but memes are so fungible. I guess it's... like, why? Why do they care? Like, you're the president of the United States. It's the hardest job in the world. It's your first day on it. Why is this something on your mind? Well, we are going to get to the Sean Spicer press conference. Right. Uh, But 
he was asked that in the press conference today, and he gave a pretty interesting answer, sort of a long answer. It was a long back and forth, probably the longest back and forth of the entire press conference. And I mean, he basically said that for the president and the people around him who are working really hard, this is, quote, demoralizing. It's not about one tweet. It's not about one picture. It's about a constant theme. It's about sitting here every time and being told, no, well, we don't think he can do that. He'll never accomplish that. He can't win that. It won't be the biggest. It's not going to be that good. The crowds aren't that big. He's not that successful. The narrative and the, the, the default narrative is always negative. And it's demoralizing. And I think that when you sit here and you realize the sacrifice the guy made of leaving a very, very successful business. Basically, it sounded he really like he wanted to wake up in the morning on Saturday and be president of the United States and feel like president of the United States and see CNN praising him. And, and you know instead, what? he woke up and he saw aerial pictures that showed blank space and he saw thousands and thousands and thousands of people marching in the street. But he woke up in a house that Abraham Lincoln used to live in. Like, that should make you feel good. Well, but they, it didn't. Like, they, they actually said that it was frustrating and demoralizing. Those are words that are being used by our press secretary to describe how the president of the United States felt the morning after he took the oath of And also right. there was an implication that somehow the people in the media had that intention, that the idea was how do we delegitimize, how do we demoralize, how do we resist the existence of this new administration, and we were doing it by, in this sense, presenting evidence of what kind of an event it was on Friday. One thing that was upsetting to the president and was upsetting to his staff is something real, which is that there was an erroneous pool report. Yes. Uh, reporters on Friday went in to witness the president signing some executive thingies, uh, and a pool report went out saying that President Trump had removed the bust of uh, Martin Luther King Jr. and replaced it with the bust of Churchill. Well, it turns out that he just added the bust of Churchill and now he has both Churchill and Martin Luther King Jr. staring at him in his office. But the reporter who reported this to the pool had not seen where they had moved the Martin Luther King bust and was wrong. And as I understand it, quite soon, apologized, said I was wrong, and sent out to the exact same list of people this information. Right. But Corrected it almost mm -hmm. immediately. But the correction always lags the impact of the misreport. That has always been true. It is a highly regrettable thing. It is something we all suffer from and deal with uh, in our profession. But in this particular instance, there does not appear to have been any animus. The reporter was able to correct it and apologize within the hour. But for an administration that feels slighted and was looking for slights. This is something that they are just coming back to and coming back to mm -hmm. and sort of using to bludgeon the press. They, they have one example yeah. and they're using it to equate it to what the press secretary did, which was come out and say things that are just not true. Mm -hmm. And then refuse to correct them or to backtrack on them and continues to double down on them. I guess one more thing about all of this in terms of the large scale implications like, we rely on the federal government for a ton of information and not just political information. Like, right. Danielle, you're always digging into all the data we get from the federal government. Yeah. Just, like, give us a sense of how big of a deal it is if suddenly we need to be skeptical about numbers coming from, from all these reports. Right. Okay. So, like, a couple things here. So, 
we get a lot, a heck of a lot of data from the government. The Census Bureau is a big one. The Bureau of Labor Statistics is another big one. That's where the jobs report comes from. The Bureau of Economic Analysis, that's where we get our GDP numbers. And I'm just giving you the he- the headline numbers here. There are just scores more stats that we get from these places. Like how many people are in America? How many people have jobs? How much money we make? How much energy we're using? I mean, it goes on and on and on. Right. Although what I would say here is as far as people being skeptical of the numbers coming out, I mean, these aren't the people who are coming up with the numbers and counting these things up aren't people that that the president is going, you, I want you to count these numbers. Like, they are not presidential appointments. A lot of them are career people. Yeah. What we have seen from Donald Trump on the campaign trail is that he has doubted the numbers coming out of the government, saying, for example, that the unemployment rate is wrong. Mm-hmm. The, the 4.7% rate that we usually hear. There are several unemployment rates, but he said 42% on the campaign trail, which is not true. Yeah. So if he, if the president himself is doubting the numbers coming out of the federal government, that is a pretty big deal. And Sean Spicer was actually asked today, again by Mara, Liason, what is the unemployment rate? Right. What's the overall unemployment rate? Are you talking about whether or not we include the full... I'm just asking you. I mean, the Bureau of Labor Statistics puts it out. No, no, no. It's not a question of what I accept. I mean, there are ways that you can put out full employment. I know the difference. Right, but I'm saying that that, so there's a reason that we put out several versions of that. One is the illustrative nature of, of... how you count the unemployed. And Spicer never said correct. what the unemployment rate was. Wouldn't give a number. Right. On, on how, to, how to make economic right. policy. During the campaign, he at one point, Trump at one point said it was 42%. I just want to well, again, clear I, on I, where we're starting but, from. But, 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 but again, part of it is his economic team is going to look at a multitude of statistics and drive economic policies. His goal He actually spent like three minutes or something talking about why maybe those numbers aren't the best numbers, and maybe those numbers aren't the best numbers. We can argue about that. He has a point, but there was a more nuanced way to make this point. And there is the bigger issue of if there is a concern about trusting what the press secretary says when he comes out to that podium and stands on that podium, then when he comes out and says, we have bombed ISIS in Mosul and we we have succeeded... Do we believe it? Right. When or, he says the president will not infer, interfere with the investigation about Russia that the uh, intelligence community is conducting, do we believe it? Right. When he comes out and says that there was a terrible tornado and, um, you know, we're we're sending this much aid money, do we believe it? Mm-hmm. You can think of any number of ways that this could uh, really strain even further our trust in government, our trust in what our top elected official is saying. And that really demands attention. And it does take us back to that phrase, alternative facts. Right. So all of this came up in Sean Spicer's uh, briefing today, but he also talked about uh, some factual facts. Or There was other news too, though. Uh, Tamara, what were your big takeaways from this? Did we learn anything new in terms of Trump's agenda or things he's done or things that he's announcing? Well, he did uh, sign several executive memoranda today. And basically, the the take home from all of this is that he made promises during the campaign and he intends to keep at least some of them. Uh, So uh, Spicer talked about the memoranda that were signed. Um, One of those was uh, pulling out of the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership trade deal. Now, it's hard to pull out of a deal that has never been ratified, but whatever. It memorializes, it puts in you know, executive White House letterhead that President Trump is keeping his campaign promise. And, and to be clear, as as a reporter made the point at today's uh, press briefing, it is quite possible, perhaps even likely, that the TPP would not have gone through anyway. That's right. He, the only reason that we're 
quote, in the TPP is because President Obama wanted to be there. Congress had never approved it. What Donald Trump did today was he put up a headstone on a grave that was dug over a year ago. I mean, essentially, when Jeb... R-I-P-P-P. When Jeb Bush... <laughs> R-I-P-T-P-P. <laughs> I, think the, I think the last person who was really willing to get up there and say, yeah, I'm all for that TPP was probably if either Obama or Joe Biden, neither of whom were running, or maybe Jeb Bush, who went out of the running so soon that it didn't really seem as though he had run. But there is another question that the Trump administration and President Trump himself will have to answer at some point, uh, a question that our own Mara Eliasson asked at the press briefing today, which is, OK, well, what about China? I mean, because China has the RCEP. It's the TPP of China. More or l- It's like the alternate to the TPP. Right. More or less. It's 16 countries. It's ASEAN plus six other countries. It's a multilateral trade agreement involving some TPP countries. It's not necessarily inimical to the TPP. But the idea that the Obama administration put out there was if you allow RCEP to go through before the TPP or without the TPP. <laughs> oh, so many letters. I know. I'm, I'm sorry. sorry. This is alphabet soup. But the point is the idea that the Obama administration put forth is that this will allow China to, quote unquote, write the rules, to get in there and to make its trade agreements with these countries without the U.S. involved. RCEP? RCEP. Uh-huh. Well, it's pretty, it's pretty hard to deny that this is a rival arrangement yeah. whereby all of these countries, there's a great overlap between the two treaties. Uh, all these countries will be dealing more with China if they're part of China's deal than if they're part of ours. Right. And to add one more thing, trade agreements are not just about manufactured goods. It's easy to get that misconception from all of these conversations, but they're not. They're about intellectual property. They're about environmental regulations, labor regulations. These are big rules that are being written by these, and this is why such a fuss is made over them. Speaking of the world. Uh huh. Segue. Nice segue. Uh, Tamara, we have our first head of state coming to visit uh, Donald Trump later this week. Yes, Theresa May is coming on Friday. She is the prime minister of the United Kingdom and will be sort of overseeing Brexit, which is something that Donald Trump supported. and he was Trump Brexit has plus plus plus. That's how we framed his campaign. <laughs> and, and Donald Trump has talked about wanting to strike a deal with the UK, some sort of a UK trade deal that, in theory, would allow it to be a sort of uh, have freedom from the European Union. Anyway, it's you know they are a close ally of the United States, you know, and uh, it is symbolic if nothing else, that she is the first visit. But he also has a meeting set up with um, Enrique Peña Nieto on the 31st of January. Uh, and the focus of that will be more trade. And that's uh, the president of Mexico, who Trump famously uh, pulled a surprise visit on flying to Mexico City in August on the day that he rolled out his immigration plan, which was which was one of the many stunning, crazy things that happened over the course of the Trump campaign. Yeah, and uh, you covered that speech in Arizona. I did. But what a crazy day. Yeah, that was that was one of the weirder days. Of whiplash. The uh, Major and, whiplash. And yeah. back to Theresa May, uh, she's also, it's interesting, she is going to the congressional uh, Republican retreat uh, in Philadelphia. The, the House and Senate Republicans usually get together at the beginning of a session to plot their sessions. Now the Prime Minister of Great Britain is going to pop in to to give her thoughts on what congressional Republicans should do. Because why not? Sure. (laughs) Is there anything else that we learned uh, today from Sean Spicer's briefing or other announcements from the White House that we should hit on? Well, um, they do seem to like the idea of bilateral trade deals much more than the idea of multilateral trade deals. That was sort of a big theme. Uh, Another theme is that 
They are still in the decision-making process on moving the U.S. embassy in Israel to Jerusalem. It had been a campaign promise of Donald Trump, but now they're in the decision-making process. Should we say why that is such a touchy issue? If you move the American embassy, the U.S. embassy, from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, you are essentially taking a very powerful side in an almost ancient argument that is one of the last and most difficult issues between the Israeli government and the Palestinians or whatever other name you want to give to their uh, opponents in that part of the world. It is the struggle between the religions. It's the struggle between the politics, the struggle between the people of the city of Jerusalem. And it has always been reserved to be part of the final arrangements once everything else about some kind of a peace treaty could finally be struck. Uh, the Bill Clinton campaign way back in the 90s said, oh, we're going to move that embassy to Jerusalem. And it sounded great. And uh, in eight years as president, he never did it. And neither did George W. Bush and neither did Barack Obama. And some people are going to ask in the next few hours, days, weeks, months, is Donald Trump going to do it either? Because in the end, it is just out of sequence in solving the whole part of the Middle East struggle. Tam, you used the phrase executive thingies to describe what the president did uh, earlier today. Yes. Go on. Um there will be a federal hiring freeze, except for when it comes to the military and national slash public security. Um, Which is a big part of the federal government. Yes, of course it is. Um, and of course, they could just hire contractors instead. But mm -hmm. never mind that. Uh, and then he uh, Trump also reinstated something called the Mexico City policy, which is uh, related to abortion, and it's kind of the thing that ping-pongs back and forth. So Reagan first did it, and it stayed with Bush, but then Clinton undid it, and then Bush, too, brought it back, and, and then what does it Obama do? took it away. Yes. So this will cut off federal dollars to international aid organizations unless they promise not to promote abortion. So hmm. even if these organizations use their own money to perform abortion services and other types of things— if they do that, then they would lose federal funds. One other thing from today, uh, our new favorite word of the last few months that nobody ever thought about before, but now we talk a lot about emoluments clause. There was a lawsuit related to that today. Uh, what happened with that? And did the White House weigh in on it? The lawsuit comes from the uh, good government type group, Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington, or CREW. Uh, it is a lawsuit related to uh, Donald Trump's business interests and whether by merely having people stay in his hotels, use his golf courses, he is in violation of this thing that says that you can't get money from foreign governments. Uh, you know, they filed the suit. This is a test. Um, Donald Trump was asked about it. Uh, a reporter shouted a question. And he while he was signing the executive memoranda and he said no merit. It has no merit. All right. Let's take a quick break. We will be back to talk more about those rallies from over the weekend. Let's take a moment to thank and share a message from our sponsor, Full Frontal with Samantha B on TBS. New season, new night, same bad attitude. Don't miss all new episodes of the show Rolling Stone calls A New Era in Late Night. Full Frontal with Samantha B. now on its new night, Wednesdays at 10.30, 9.30 Central on TBS. Thanks for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast. If you want to hear an in-depth conversation about the Trump Foundation, listen to Fresh Air's recent episode featuring Washington Post reporter David Farenthold. 
We've talked a lot about his work on the show before, of course. He used Twitter to launch a nationwide scavenger hunt to find Trump Foundation assets and donations. Also on Fresh Air, don't miss Terry Gross's recent interview with Bruce Springsteen, someone you probably know who he is already without us explaining him to you. That is home in New Jersey. They talk about Springsteen's childhood, his combative relationship with his father, and the origin of his stage persona. Find Fresh Air on the NPR One app and at npr.org slash podcasts. Okay, back to the show. All right, before we go, let's talk a little bit about the Women's March in Washington and all over the country, actually all over the world on Saturday. We previewed this in our last episode after the inauguration. Uh, Danielle, you were on the mall Saturday. What was it like? Uh, it was, I mean, it was a bit, very celebratory atmosphere. Uh, one, th- I was down on the mall for the inauguration and then the next day for the march. And, you know, it's true that when you are in a place with a bunch of like-minded people, it is easy for everybody to be happy. And that was true in both cases. Yeah. Um, but aside from that, two things really struck me. One is the these hats that everybody was wearing, uh, in part as a nod to uh, vulgar remarks made by Donald Trump in that 2005 Access Hollywood tape. And also because the hats had the appearance of giving the wearer cat ears. But the vast majority of them were handmade. Uh, I wrote a story about these for NPR.org, and I talked to a lot of people about their hats, and anybody you asked about their hat had a story about it. They got it from, you know, a state lawmaker. Their grandmother knit a whole bunch and didn't come to the march but wanted the family to. Some people got theirs from strangers on the street just Mm -hmm. walking in Washington uh, over the weekend. So... That fostered a sense of togetherness among uh, the people there. Aside from that, I saw a lot of people wearing uh, shirts and carrying signs not that didn't seem to reflect their own demographic. There was a lot of intersectionality is what I'm trying to say. You had a lot of men carrying signs that said this is what a feminist looks like. You had a lot of white women carrying Black Lives Matter signs. And this was a big conversation leading into the march. You had a lot of women of color saying Feminism has been run by white women for too long. Mm-hmm. So I got the sense that among some of the marchers, the message was received. This doesn't mean that, you know, everything is great. The rift has been closed by any means, and I'm sure it will keep going. But I did see that a sign that you had people who really were trying to cross lines who were out there on Saturday. Yeah. Uh, Tamara, Democrats, to put it mildly, have been pretty down over the last few months. This, to me, seemed, and being on the Hill today, uh, it seemed like this March, the amount of people who showed up in cities all across the country really energized progressives in a way that they have not felt in a really long time. It felt like, oh, okay, maybe we're not totally dead. Maybe we're not on the mat. Yeah, I got an email from one progressive who said... Saturday was the first day since the election that she's felt okay. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are a lot of people who are progressive and not feeling okay. And and that sense of togetherness um, was something special for them. And the other thing is that I, since that March, as a reporter, have heard from a whole bunch of people who were like, yeah, um, I'm I'm calling my senator, but I also wanted you to know that I'm doing it. Or like <laughs> people who are doing things and being involved in a way that they haven't before and they're very excited about it. One thing I would add is, you know, all this togetherness on the mall, you know, came after a very bruising defeat in November. And that came after a very divisive primary fight among Democrats. That defeat in November really unified what had been a very divided and very argumentative coalition. Because they're like cats. (laughs) 
<laughs> Ron. And, and that's why, for the first time in all this while, certainly since November 8th, you got the sense that the Democrats might be able to knit something together besides hats. <laughs> I could see why you didn't in, want to let that go. I didn't want I to let that go. I was impressed at the. I looked up the the knitting pattern, and it seemed really confusing. To it me. was it was a it was not an easy knit. I mean, I, I you know I, I gave up really easily. But but Veron, <laughs> uh, hundreds of thousands of people on the National Mall protesting something is not new at all. But how precedented or unprecedented is for this many people to show up opposing a president on the very first day of his presidency? That is something it's hard to find a precedent for, although, of course, we've had the Civil Rights March of 1963. That is always, some degree, the benchmark for all these kinds of events. We had the Million Man March, the Million Mother March. We have, and in fact, it's taking place this very week, the annual March on the Mall for Life Mm -hmm. that is there to mark the anniversary of Roe versus Wade with regret and, of course, opposition. And we see that every year. Uh, There's also usually some kind of a counter march to that in support of Roe versus Wade and and the right to abortion. So we have seen many, many, many marches, but most of them are usually promoted in a certain way that we expect a certain amount of participation, we expect a certain scenario to play out, and it generally does, and there aren't a lot of surprises. What was stunning about this event this weekend, it was so much bigger than anyone was expecting. I think that's really where the power of it is. It Mm -hmm. was the impact made by the sheer surprise, and as you say, on the first full day of the Trump presidency. I got to say, when I was trying to leave the march, I, I just kept walking up block after block and wondering where it was going to end. There were always more people. It's yeah. really stretched into downtown D.C. Another thing that, that President Trump tweeted about the Saturday march was that the the behavior of some of the celebrities who got the mic and were on the jumbotrons uh, and were, were vituperative and vulgar in a lot of the ways they were talking about the president uh, probably hurt their own cause. and. Yeah. Did Madonna say something about wanting to blow up the White House or thinking about it? There were some ugly remarks made that I'm sure most of the people hearing them in the march itself Mm -hmm. were were also disturbed at and would have just as soon not have had on the Jumbotron. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Did you talk to people about what they would do next? Because I think that's the big question a lot of people in politics have. Uh, You know, on the Democratic side, this is exciting. All these people came out and protested. Do they vote? Do they lobby? What do they do? Right. I mean, this is talk as of right now. I don't know how many of these people actually do it. You heard a lot of people talking about, you know, calling their Congress people, for example. Uh, a few people mentioned, you know, running for office or wanting or telling their friends to run for office, you know, that sort of thing. Or and you, speakers really uh, talked about that a lot as well. You heard about people, especially a big thing is donating to particular causes. So, you know, everybody has plans. But as far as, you know, what, what exactly? Everybody has New Year's resolutions, well, too. Well, yeah. You know, and, and yeah. listen, protests really can create change. They, uh, even if not everybody from there goes and calls their congressman, I mean, listen, this movement has gotten a lot more attention to some women's issues, just like Black Lives Matter got more attention to police shootings, for example. But yes, the question for what real change happens does come next when people, you know, try to run for office and that sort of thing. So I live in the part of town where all the buses uh, kind of drove into and parked, uh, both for the inauguration and for the March Saturday. And it was just so striking and jarring to see huge crowds of two very different parts of the country stream by wearing different hats, having different views, having different beliefs, and being very opinionated and very passionate about both their sides. 
I just think uh, that that 24-hour whiplash of people on the mall and people coming in out of D.C. was really striking and powerful. Yeah, and uh, forgive me if this is sort of a silly reference, but I kept thinking of this Dr. Seuss book, The Sneetches, you know, where where some have stars in their bellies and some don't, but just bear with me here. But when I was leaving the mall, I walked past a bank of restaurants uh, on... I believe it's H Street in the Chinatown neighborhood. And I saw in one window a bunch of people lined up eating their food with their red hats on and, and you know, with a bunch of pink hat wearing people behind them and another one, all pink hats. The idea being you could the teams were very, very visible in Washington this week. And you could see people noticing it on each other. When people saw a red hatted person at the Women's March, you could see them kind of, you know, stare a little longer to see who it was and what they're doing here. You know, that sort of thing. <laughs> well, whether you are a star-bellied sneech or a plain-bellied sneech, we will be <laughs> keeping you up to speed on all the news coming out of D.C. over the next few months. Uh, that is all the time we have for today, though. There's a lot going on. There's confirmation hearings. There's votes happening soon on Trump's cabinet appointees. You can keep up with all of that at NPR.org, of course, on the NPR One app and on your local public radio station. Okay, one more thing. A plug for our DC Live show. Get tickets while you still can. We'll be in DC for a live taping of the podcast. We're calling it President Trump, What's Next? There will be a lot to talk about. And you can get tickets at nprpresents.org. I'm Scott Detrow. I cover Congress. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House. I'm Danielle Kurtzleben, political reporter. And I'm Ron Elving, editor-correspondent. Thank you for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast.